You're listening to a podcast from 702. The Literature Corner. And today we're going to be talking about The World Looks Like This From Here. This is the latest book by Kopano Ratele, subtitled Thoughts on African Psychology. I've been banging on about it and put the cover on my social media pages. I recommend that you buy a copy, that you read it. It is philosophical, it is beautifully written, and there are 100 entries, which is basically the author ruminating on psychology and then a range of related social and political themes based on his experience um, as someone who's done a lot of work, uh, often with boys and with men in workshops across the country, but also trained as a psychologist himself. So the core of the book is about psychology as a discipline, but there's much, much, much more about general life and uh, socio-political contours of our society that Copano very usefully uh, reflects on in this book. And there's also a part of this book, if you are a Copano fan, which I know that many of you are because I've forced you to become one, where he looks back in a sense on his earlier self and also self-examines his own convictions about a range of subjects, which is always a wonderful thing to do uh, because very often we either don't talk about changes in our own conviction um, and pretend we ghost our earlier selves um, or we don't want to self-examine mistaken views or maybe hastily thought through views we had in the early parts of our career. So a really, really fascinating book, this, for multiple reasons. Papana Ratella joins us in our Cape Talk studios uh, for the next hour or so, or less than an hour. We'll get through as much of this uh, conversation as we can. But really, you've got to buy the book, read it, and then we'll have a second uh, installment of this conversation. Kopano, good morning and compliments. Compliments to CBS. Thank you for the invitation. I'm delighted to be starting the year in conversation with you. I'm delighted you've gifted us another book. You know how much I love all of your work, particularly Liberating Masculinities. Um, and this book I really, really, really um, enjoyed. And I halfway through, I remembered we had a conversation about our next book projects uh, when you and I were traveling to the Apartheid Museum a year or two back. And you were describing what you wanted to do, and you've given birth to your next project. Mine is still to be written. So I also had guilt when I was reading it, but I was delighted to read um, a friend successfully having completed such an important work. I want to start right at the beginning because there's so much here. Let's be dynamic about it. I know there are themes you want us to get to, writing style and technique and that kind of thing as well. Uh, we won't have time to go through everything that's in the book, so I'm really cherry-picking some stuff that I think will be a hook for for a general audience. But I'm going to start with your author's note, and I want to read the first paragraph, and then I've got a question for you, and we'll take it from there. Kopano writes the following. A decade ago, I would not have advised anyone to study psychology. Psychology, I would have said, is bad for your mental health and way to turn out that being a psychologist is good for your economic status, the likelihood is that you would be supporting the marginalization of people who most need psychological help. I mean, as an opening paragraph, I thought, damn, I wouldn't let you near any students during orientation week with that message because all of them will sign up at the next department, not in the psychology department. But you do qualify it by saying that was your view of psychology 10 years ago. Tell me two things. Why did you have that view of psychology? And why is that view different 10 years later? I started teaching uh, in my 20s, um, 11 years later, 
I left the department where I was teaching. And I should mention it, this was the University of the Western Cape. Uh, I had been lucky to start my teaching career at a black university where the people uh, who were teaching at that university, whom I had met two years before, people like Norman Duncan, who is now the Deputy Vice-Chancellor at the University of Pretoria, Garth Stevens, who is the Dean of Humanities at VETS, Anna Strebel, Tammy Schaeffer, so critical anti-racist psychologists mm. and feminist psychologists. Mm. But even in that department, after 11 years of teaching, I realized that we face a dilemma, not only at the University of the Western Cape, but in psychology departments across Africa and South Africa specifically. This is that we teach things we don't believe in. We teach what I've called in the book Euro-American psychology. But really, this is mostly American psychology. American psychology is around us, in front of us, behind us, inside us. We are taught to see the world from the perspective of American psychologists, of American cultural life. And that, after a while, was distressing, uh, mildly depressing, um, sometimes even mm-hmm. majorly depressing for mm-hmm. me. And I quit. I, I decided that I have not... So, let me say this. So, these people I had mentioned were teaching what are called elective courses. So, they would teach a psychology of racism or a psychology of gender. But these were elective, so students could elect to think about racism as part of psychology. Because psychology generally mm. does not put gender at its center, mm. certainly not race at its center, and the history of racism that constitutes psychology itself, but of course constitutes relations between black and white, the north and the south, the west and the rest. So after a 11 years, I decided I have tried, we have tried all our best we can, but psychology just refuses to do that. And at that moment, then I would have told students, no, th- you know, this is not good for your health, for your emotional health. Mm. Do something else. But after, after 11 years, after uh, more than 11 years, uh, specifically from about 2014, it all came down in a, a little bit more coherent way to start to write this. And I've been writing quite a lot of things for the world, not just in this book, but in general articles in a more formal kinds of uh, register mm. about what I well, understand. At this, at this point, at this point, Kapano, I mean, there's sort of like technical choices one can make, right? If you think that a discipline, an institution, and this is why I really believe that your book is important beyond psychology. The subtitle is, is accurate. It's also deceptive. Whether you're a philosopher, a political science, a major, whether you're running a bank, an NGO, there are generalizable insights that, that come out of this. Because what happens here, if, 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 I, and my apologies for interrupting you, uh, what happens now is that you kind of like 10 years go by and you realize that actually tactical choices were available to me. Um, and it's the choices we talk about in many other contexts in our country. Do I start my own private school in the township or do I go to bishops and decolonize it? Do I, continue to turn my back on psychology or do I think about perhaps saying to my child or mentee, yeah, if you want to do psychology, do it, but here are the caveats. And that's where the change came in for you, I think. That's a wonderful observation. Indeed, uh, three years before that, I had had 
uh, also decided to quit University of Western Cape. But the university had been so generous. It had gave me, it gave me an opportunity to teach masculinities because that's always been my interest right from the beginning. So I divided uh, my time between masculinity studies mm. in the gender department and psychology. And so there was a little bit of relief for about three years. But even after three years, I says, I want to walk away from psychology. Mm. And so the decision could have been to do any other thing, mm. uh, to go in another department, to start a consultancy as, as you're right, or just write, uh, stay at home and, and, and write. Um, but it took a while to, to, as, as you, you, you understand and, and listeners will understand to return to psychology from a different vantage point. Mm, absolutely. And then it becomes an interesting project at this point. And the way the book is written here is the careful reader will appreciate this. The lazy reader might think that you are sometimes repetitive, but you come back in iterations to what it means to construct a discipline, psychology that centers Africa. And there's so many wonderful entries there. I didn't want to pick any one of them. I thought between you and me, we can just speak conversationally into that. The heart of the project is what does it mean to center Africa? And you took me back to my own studies uh, in philosophy. And I thought, oh, my God, this is this is this is real and challenging and and triggering because many of us, whether we majored in history, in English, anthropology, sociology, will feel guilty reading your book because we too were guilty of thinking that if you have a master's 30,000 word dissertation that you hand in and all of your references are Euro-American, you don't think of that as a bibliography that is Euro-American centric. You think of it as the great living philosophers are abroad, the great dead ones are abroad. So those are the philosophers, the sociologists who should be there. And lo and behold, if you should be that one person wanting to study an African philosophy question like, you know, a dissertation on Ubuntu and ethics, you'll probably be secretly be thought of even by your peers as choosing a quote unquote easy, um, an easy dissertation question. So what you take seriously in this book is what does it mean to take seriously Africa as a potential center of psychology, the way in which the discipline has had Europe and America as its center, even as we speak. Absolutely. Let's, let's, uh, bring in listeners because yeah, one of the uh, very pointed way I, I do that is to ask a question. So would a technically superior, a wonderful thesis that codes in psychology, for instance, Maslow, Freud, or in philosophy, Foucault, Derrida goes back to Marx, to Hegel, and it's well written, it's well crafted. Does that in this country, uh, deserve a distinction? Does it deserve to get 80%, <laughs> 90%, whatever it is? Mm. Or should we be thinking about why is the canon so overpowering that you can't even see uh, that there are people who have been thinking about the similar questions who are not as well-cited, who are as not celebrated? And this... Uh, I use the example of a thesis. I, I examine a lot of theses, uh, like most uh, people who work at universities. I examine theses most of the time. Uh, probably just one thesis in all these years uh, had to be sent back. 
Some of the theses are good enough, they're satisfactory, but once in a while I find a really good thesis. Um, and I found one that was submitted at the University of the Western Cape by a young Afrikaner woman called Monique Hazeman, who is now a postdoc in, in the UK. Hmm. And I found that well-crafted, really well-argued, very critical, but I didn't find one reference to uh, African thought uh, ex, you know, besides one or two that uh, in the department where she she was doing the PhD. So that's the that's the big question. And the wonderful thing for for readers is that I invited Monique to offer a criticism. So free myself of that. So the point here is about the canon, whether in English, whether in philosophy, or whether in psychology. There are names that you have to cite to show that you're competent, you're able, you're a smart student. But what does that does, is of course, reproduce that canon itself. And so you can't think outside of the frame. And and I guess I am encouraging, and I have uh, done this now, as I say, for the last five years or so, well, about you know, creating. To, 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 to drive the point home, whether you're an academic or not, whether you want to be a psychologist or not, a philosopher or not, the simple point is, and this applies to all of us, regardless of educational background, it, it applies to, and I shouldn't universalize because some of us are freer than others, but to many of us as Africans, is that we have internalized Afrophobia. That really is what it, what it, what it, what it boils down to. And so maybe you don't care about psychology, but you care about soccer and you're listening to the show right now. We tend to fetishize a coach with a European accent more than someone who's got 50 years of experience locally. And we think you're taking a gamble if you're going to have a former black cricket player as your your specialist coach to work in cricket with your bowlers. Let's call him Makai Ntini. But if we were to bring in a speedster that's also retired from Australia, then suddenly we're going to have instant confidence that maybe our bowlers can perform better in the third test. So for, for me, that that is where the book gets its universal appeal from, is that psychology is your discipline. But there's a sense in which many of us, even those of us who think of ourselves as woke, have been blind to the ways in which we obsess about Europe and America in our own thinking of what counts as excellence. I am loving this. The phrase you use is some of us are freer than others, and I love that phrase. That's precisely the point. That uh, See, whiteness and racism is undeniably in all of us, that you, you can't evade mm. it and... And one writer in South Africa said, you know, um, think carefully before you say you are, you, you are not racist because somehow mm. it catches you without you realizing. So we mm. internalize this standard. This standard is white. It tends to be heterosexual. It's male. It's in us. So the gaze, even when your body is black, when you are a woman, when you are queer, you see the world from a particular perspective because it's reproduced consistently, routinely, and sooner or later, right from the beginning, as a matter of fact, sooner or later, you begin to see the well from that perspective. So somehow to free yourself from this gaze, the gaze that you turn inwards, but also you use to see the world, is a mission in itself to become entitled to your own views, to be freer, to find your voice, whether on radio, on writing, in fiction, in making films, in teaching. I think, I think that's, that's absolutely right. You then 
I, there was a part of me that thought, okay, don't read this uncritically just because you are friends with, um, Copano and you love his brain. Um, but, but also try to read generously nonetheless, because the next question then becomes, if we are aware of what the problem is, we need to have a concrete idea of what we are aiming at. If you and I were to start, um, a psychology department at a, let's make it up, University of Santon that we establish tomorrow. And we want African psychology to be the core of the curriculum. What are we, what are we aiming at? And you, 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 you unravel that question very slowly and only later in the book, once you've done the necessary work conceptually, do you give an example even of, of one person that's attempted to write an, an introductory textbook on this question? But what would be the nuts and bolts of African psychology? Because people know what it means to study Jung, to study Freud, this, that, and the other theorists. When we say African psychology, what does that point to curriculum-wise? Wow, Eusebius, this is a wonderful conversation already, and, and I'm hoping people will participate. Look, I mean, there are this is where I, I begin at. Um, let me mention a name. A name is Augustine Noye. He's a Nigerian-born South African-based scholar who's been writing quite a lot around African psychology. Um, he is based at the University of KZN. We mm. have begun a discussion uh, outside uh, in, in journals around the world. His view is a different one. His view is, let me start with that, that African psychology is itself a discipline, a sub-discipline of psychology. But I think that is an error to think like that. My view is African psychology is an orientation. It's a particular way of seeing the world. Now this, each of these will lead you to different, to different kinds of, of things. One is, you might know, an example is African history, for instance. Uh, I think there might be also African philosophy departments around in some U.S. departments. So you would create a department of African psychology mm. because it's a sub-discipline or like African history. But I think the subject of psychology is different from the subject of history. History mm. can be geographically determined that this is the history that happens in Africa or uh, by people who come into Africa. But psychology is indeed something that uh, uh, one can see around all of the world. So I think one has to then start to say, well, let's have in two ways. You could have in two ways. You could start with the work that has been produced in this country around all the topics of psychology, learning memory, motivation, you name mm. it. And there are works like that. And then, of course, because it's an orientation, it doesn't exclude reading Freud, European texts. Sure. And so what you don't want to do, which is what we tell students to do in writing all essays, you say, start internationally. We call it internationally, <laughs> which, is, which is weird. Mm. But basically, we mean start in Europe yes. and then make examples of South Africa. What I say is start here. Go to Europe, see what they are doing, and come back here mm. and 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 give us and give us there. So this is this is the curriculum. We start with Mangani, who I mentioned, Noye, I mentioned Katrina McLeod, it Rhodes, uh, mm. and 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 uh, positive psychology to me, Itumelon Kumalo at uh, at Free State. So we we'll start here and see what other people are doing, and then come back here because what we are trying to talk about is life, behavior, attitudes as they happen here. But of course as 
uh, similar or different from how attitudes, behavior, virtues, uh, motivation is appears, meaning it's what you might call uh, phenomenology, as they appear in Europe because because there's a connection between people all over the world in one sense in 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 how how that we all think that we all feel mm. we all act i don't remember at oxford my undergraduate friends having electives named as follows welsh philosophy english philosophy scottish philosophy or my american friends who were graduate students at oxford having done college degrees first in America, having done, you know, maybe Chicago School of Economics, but but it's not typically the case that academic departments in the global north refer to themselves. And so there's a beautiful philosophical conundrum that you keep coming back to in your book, which is that you have to, it's kind of like with, with race, Ideally, we want race to be irrelevant, mm. but the path towards irrelevance is to speak into the bloody thing. So you have to talk about African psychology so that we know what it is that we're trying to do differently at UWC, UCT, at WITS tomorrow or starting 12 o'clock today. But you, you remind us and you remind your peers in psychology that in a sense, as soon as you say, come to me, I'm offering you African psychology you're not part of the solution. It's also a version of the problem because we need to what you call aim at redundancy as as simply as possible. Explain that idea to the public. I think you have explained it really well. Yes, absolutely. It's called, uh, um, in one sense, this this dilemma, this, you might even call it an ontological dilemma, but perhaps it's also epistemological in the sense that the, the more, you know, what you've said, it, of course, there are parts of Europe, of America, where you start to have these adjectives of appearance, meaning that you have to name something like European history. You have to name something like Welsh literature. But generally, if you are at the center of the world, you don't need the adjective. Mm. English is English. Mm. Uh, Psychology is psychology because you have that freedom, that entitlement. Now, if you are writing from below history, if you're writing after colonialism as the target of colonialism, meaning here in South Africa, in other parts of Africa and and South South America and other parts of the world, it means that somehow you want to call attention to what you're doing. Mm. But really, the ultimate aim is... To speak without this adjective, you want to say, and and for me, then the vision to go back to that question. The aim is to have at least two broad categories mm. of psychology within psychology department. What you might call the more culturally oriented psychology. Here, I'm including also, by the way, social psychology. So you're seeing the world from the perspective of what philosophers might call virtues, you know, and, and you can see them in psychology. And then the other are more structural, the psychology of structures, materiality, uh, bodies, economics, and politics. So these are two broad things that in when you're writing a course, we're going to do psychology of structures, so structural psychology 101, 201. But within that, you are going to teach and put in the curriculum how to think about structures here and and here's a, a very particular point uh, that that might even make this better because if you're going to call 
uh, well, after you have decided that we're not going to call it African psychology of structures, you want to teach about corruption, for instance, in South Africa, because yes. it, although it appears elsewhere in the world, it is a very particular manifestation uh, in South Africa, and you're going to teach about that. But also because psychology, the the hegemonic form of psychology doesn't put corruption at its center in how people negotiate right. their lives. Absolutely. So clearly, yeah. this yeah. is a topic that is very particular mm. to a particular country. Mm. It's half past 11 and we're in conversation with uh, Professor Kopano Ratele. Please join the conversation. There's no such thing as a dumb question. This is important material. Very often we have these conversations at our level, which is fine. But let's challenge ourselves to go deeper. Some of you get annoyed with youngsters who are energetic on our campuses and say, we must decolonize the curriculum. In a sense, part of what uh, Kopano has done in this book is to give, you, to give you the most serious exposition of what it might think to decolonize a department and a discipline. So if you've been asking for the higher grade version of it, well, here you have it. You've had it served to you. As a skeptic, you'd have to engage this kind of clarity about what the problem is with the status quo and also an idea of how we might change it. After the news headlines, we're going to just flip uh, loosely around different unconnected themes, some that are particularly practical and interesting, just to pique your curiosity about this book. So coming up still, the next issue we're going to talk about is an entry that was entitled Black Children and White Doll Day. The Literature Corner. It is the Literature Corner. We're talking about The World Looks Like This From Here, Thoughts on African Psychology by Kopana Ratel, and I'm in conversation with uh, Kopana. We've got a couple of callers, so before we go on to that entry that I was mentioning before the news headlines, let's speak to some of our listeners. Um, first up is Dylan in Santon. How's that, Dylan? Hey, Simeus. How are you? I'm very well. Thanks for calling in. Yeah, sure, no worries. Okay, so as you know, I studied philosophy as well. Um, I did a Bachelor of Arts in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics mm. at UNISA. Now, on the uh, on the philosophy side of things, whilst we did a lot of Western philosophy, I'd say about 70% of the ph- uh, philosophy studied was African philosophy. Intro to African philosophy, advanced African philosophy. Uh, so we, there was more African philosophy than Western and I think I find that very intriguing. You know, it made the degree a lot more re- relevant for me being an African. Yeah, that's atypical. Mm. UNISA's good that way. That's not, that wouldn't be your experience, I can tell you now, um, if you were at UCT or even at my uh, beloved alma mater, Rhodes, or at, or at WITS even. Um, sure, UNISA sure. does quite well in that regard. How did you find it? Uh, I actually found it very, very difficult to study. Um, mm. People think philosophy is these. Philosophy is, I mean, like formal logic is one of the subjects. It's pure maths, basically. Mm. Um, I, I, found, I found philosophy very, very difficult to study and to grasp, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. That's beautiful. Absolutely, absolutely beautiful. I, yeah, I remember to take another discipline, um, English literature. Uh, Copano, you know, having a conversation when I was at Rhodes with a mate of mine that was a peer in my class, a far more brilliant philosophy student than me. Um, but we were ha- having a banter about thesis choices when we got to post-grad level and she had majored in philosophy and English. And we once had a conversation just, um, you know, about uh, Titi Dangaremba. And she was saying, no, you know, that really isn't proper literature. That's basically glorified anthropology. I don't even know why that should be studied um, in in undergraduate. 
And of course, it was one of the very few African texts that were being taught in English one at Rhodes University anyway. Um, but her attitude did not surprise me because you write about later in the book um, the sort of genealogy um, when it comes to the canon. Similarly, what we teach and what we value as writers depend on very often what we were exposed to by our teachers and our lecturers. And when it's drummed into our head that the real deal is Shakespeare rather than, you know, some African writer, then, of course, you're going to think that your friend that is speaking a Zimbabwean writer for their term paper is somehow making an easier choice or less important choice in terms of in terms of the canon. When you engage your peers now being in, at, a, at a different place within the academy compared to 10 years ago, have you seen attitudinal shifts and more than shifts in attitude? Have you seen shifts in terms of what they pick in terms of speakers they might engage, non-academics they might invite, and what texts they might uh, use um, to teach concepts, even if those concepts are borrowed from the West? Only a handful, I'm afraid. It is depressing how uh, there's still confusion, there's resistance, there's denial. This, you said earlier on about, about the West, its greatest achievement is precisely that, that literature is what Wordsworth wrote, what Shakespeare wrote, what um, mm. in America Philip Roth, and you name them. So even someone like Toni Morrison had to battle, had to really battle to get to that point. Hmm. Um, and the same thing in our country. And so this thing you were already saying, you were suggesting, if I may, uh, Eusebius, that it is imperative to increase the number, our number. So when I'm discussing, and I've been invited to a number of universities, and I remember my visit at, uh, at Free State, uh, in the general audience, there were when I was launching the book, there were a lot of black students, and the philosophy lecturer who was in dialogue with me was fantastic. And I was, I'm, I'm surprised. I must say, I'm surprised when I, and and I guess this again is another effect of racism. When I see people uh, of what you might call Caucasian origins, white people liking the book, I'm saying I, I didn't expect this. I didn't really expect this. But in the psychology department, the indifference was astounding. The people basically uh, ignored me. They attended. They said there, but I, you could sense as <laughs> somebody who's always, you know, listening to the affects in the room, mm. the intensity of the indifference about what you're talking about because they're invested in this. That psychology is psychology is psychology. And this thing about trying to decolonize, trying to see from Africa, is just a lot of BS. Absolutely. Kosi, good morning. Hey, you said yes. Um, sure, I'm not sure where to, where to start having listened to, to both of you. But I think, you know, I just want to echo the sentiment around, you know, the overpowering nature of the, of the Euro-Western canon in psychology. And I myself, you know, trying to navigate right now uh, my PhD, I'm only now discovering a whole body of literature from black psychology and, and, uh, and things that I have, and, and I'm, I'm angry because I have gone through eight years of psychology and I was put at the end of some process and I was told I'm a good enough psychologist and nothing that I had studied was about me. 
and my people. Mm. And the littlest acknowledgement of blackness in psychology throughout that journey was about being Isangop mm. and traditional healing. Mm. And I remember in one meeting I said, if I hear that one more time, I'm going to scream. Because there is more to us being African than just being a Sangoma and acknowledging our presence by just, you know, uh, uh, very ceremonially just uh, 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 placating us by by just saying, reducing us to the issues of being a Sangoma and nothing else. Mm. But I think my question, you know, and and, and the one issue was... uh, People were arguing about the, the need to raise the number of black psychologists in South Africa. And, and my issue, you know, in terms of the HPCSA and academic institution is that that's one problem, but that's the lesser of the problem. Because what are we going to be feeding psychologists that are coming into the pipeline? And so my mm-hmm. question, you know, to, to Kopano right now is, uh, how do we begin to, to marry the body of work, such as his work, which is, I mean, I've read quite a lot of his work and Augustine's work and a whole lot of other work that I'm coming across now from uh, the black psychology side, from African-centered psychologists, mm. nobles, Baldwin, and so on. Mm. How do we begin to build a body that begins to speak to that in a, and, and, and put that to the fore, forefront of the academic canon, as it were? Mm. Thank you, Kosi. Mm-hmm. Kopano? Shall I go? Yeah. Okay. Well, you see, so you said said this, and of course, part of the answer is 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 this. I mean, we have to create an ecosystem, an ecosystem in which we read African writing, African psychological writing. But I think, for me, as important, you have to read outside of psychology, African thought more broadly. Uh, African philosophy, African. You have to read African fiction. Fiction written. It's a. We yeah. are at mm-hmm. a moment of cultural renaissance in Africa in mm. writing. The kind of work coming out of Nigeria, both in terms of of writing, but also all other creative forms. So you have to write re- read that, but also Uganda, Kenya, uh, and and South Africa. Uh, and part of that ecosystem is, of course, I must mention, uh, you know, things like a band to book festival. So you start to meet these other people uh, who buy books, who read books, who talk books, such as we are doing right now. That's one part of it. I want to go back to what you said, this anger. I think this is a wonderful thing, and particularly if it's said by women and queer people. Anger brings us to this point right now that, no, I, I am angry and now I have to, to change this. An invitation, I think one part of this book that, that doesn't come out clearly is this invitation, which I've already invitation both to students but also to collaborators to create with each other, to read each other, to teach each other, to learn from one another. And you're quite right. Increasing the number of psychologists without changing fundamentally how we see ourselves, what we teach, and how we think about the world will only take us so far. Absolutely. Absolutely. Gregory, good morning. Hello. Welcome to the show. Go ahead, Gregory. Hi. Good morning to you and your guest. So uh, at university, I also studied English literature, philosophy, history, and psychology. Mm. And I then found out that it was a whole lot of nonsense just in terms of the political philosophy that I had adopted, and that is the black consciousness movement philosophy and in and through itself Steve Beaker's teachings. Now, a lot of what you guys have said, the narrative surely is around the fact that Africans should recognize in and through themselves their own greatness, 
and they shouldn't be any yardstick to measure themselves against, which is Eurocentric. So that's all I have to comment on. Thank you. Thanks, Gregory. And that's a point we don't have time to make in detail because I want to take other callers as well. But, Kapano, you come back to that point several times about the importance of what we index ourselves against. It's amazing. And again, the, the, you, you spoke to me powerfully, not just to Gregory, and other people will recognize themselves. We often have imposter syndrome when we go to a conference abroad. I think I had imposter syndrome throughout my time at Oxford University. And part of it is that even if you thought you were and you presented as the most confident kid in the class back in Africa, suddenly when you know Euro-American-centric context, it is amazing how wittingly or unwittingly we do exactly what Gregory say we should try not to do. And that is to think that um, we can't possibly be the bearers of excellence because of our skin color or because of geographically where we are located. Indeed. I mean, uh, you know, Gregory has used the word nonsense. And I, part of it is about this, this rejection of psychology. But a, a guy like Seth Cooper, for instance, mm. who went to jail and part of the BC, and I have been doing what we call, as part of this, black conscious psychology. Psychology that takes this, that teaches kids who come into varsity, but probably should be done earlier about the pride, but about entitlement to your views. I mean, this is a really important part about it. If you are a mimic woman or man, a mimic subject, so you are a professor, you go around the world, but you are doing exactly what somebody in a different skin is doing. You're basically not uh, adding to originality in the world. You are basically, they look at you, they say, well, they're comfortable with you because you're saying more or less the same sort of things with a bit of variety and flavor. You're adding a skin color right there. And so at that moment, if you turn and look at yourself, you realize that you're a mimic man or woman. And what you need to do is free yourself from this mimicry that you have been taught and then uh, create things with originality. Itutang, thank you so much for your patience. Okay, Tutang, we'll come back to you if we can. I think we've just lost you there. I want to come back to, I want to go to one of my favorite, favorite little vignettes, which is the 17th entry, Black Children and White Dolls. And um, I'm going to read randomly from it, from it just for the interest of, for the sake of time. I wish we had two hours. My search for how to see from Africa authentically had been going on for 15 years when I received the Psychology and Social Change Award from Rhodes University. Or at least that's what I said to my audience when I gave my lecture at the university. But this is off by decades. The search had begun almost immediately after the first lecture I attended as a psychology student. I still remember when I learned that black children, like white children, tend to prefer white dolls. Now speak to me about that. Why did that fascinate you? And it led you to think about whether or not the insights of that American study around this question of the preference for play material, whether it also applies in the South African context. Yes, indeed, it's play materials. I mean, so at that moment, uh, I'm young, I'm in, I'm in my teens, and I start asking myself uh, about racial preferences. Basically, the larger theme here is that black children prefer whiteness. They prefer white things, whiteness, and white uh, 
toys made for white children, particularly white dolls. And I still see it today. I, I, we have, we have had a conversation about this, about toys, you see. Mm. So yesterday I was at the shops again. So I walk, uh, this, this learning, relearning to observe and to look at the world is sometimes I, I take a walk, you mm. know, like all of us. I'm walking and in a toy shop and I'm looking at how, what the kinds of toys that are being sold to children. And dolls are very particular. So if you have, only white dolls. That's the first thing. Only white dolls in a shopping, uh, in a shop, in a shopping center. The chances are that children who want to play things will gravitate to that. But it's not only about only having that. It is because that moment when you're being taught to like white things, sooner or later, you know, you, you start to think of yourself as uh, you have to measure your, your, your standards of beauty. You have to measure your very self against the white standard. And that really disturbed me. And I was asking a simple question. I wonder if you would do this work here in South Africa, in Africa, how it looked like. And, and then I was introduced to the people who had done this about basically what was being done to black kids. Uh, a couple called Kenneth Clark and Mammy Clark, who studies about what are called doll preference studies, would be used later uh, in the in the desegregation of education. Mm. But Kenneth Clark wrote a book called Prejudice in Your Child. And, I, and in the book, of course, I go to a, a, a great extent. And, and the message, I guess, I take out from, from that book is that, and, and it applies to South Africa, that it is still imperative in our country, but probably for all black parents sure. to teach their children about blackness mm. from a position of pride, mm. of humanity, of entitlement, of beauty. I want to come back to that because I'm going to end on that note. But before we do that, let's just uh, go back and see whether we have that caller on a clearer line. Itu Tang, welcome to the show. Good morning, Yusin. How are you doing? Very well. I mean, from Percy Mabandu's The Blues History to Copano, I'm full. How are you doing? I'm okay. I'm blessed. I'm seeing a beautiful 2020. Fantastic. What question or comment have you got for us? Uh, I want to ask Kapanamana, how possible is it to separate psychology from the language English or from European language? Ah, what a beautiful question. Yeah. Because I feel like it will create a great opening, especially into our careers. Like, um, we're discussing with one friend about why don't we do all professional in our language. Like even you look if you look at like our soccer players, they speak their language. Most of them they don't even know English. That's such a lovely question. English as a language presumably conduces to the kind of hegemony that your book is about. It's a big question. It's a wonderful question. It's simply asked. And I'd say uh the people in in our country who have expertise, and, and you can see here I'm copping out of this because I say, well, I, I totally support uh, uh, at UNISA, there's somebody called Pulen Sekhalo uh, and, and another person called Zetu Kagata. Both of them have been championing particularly yes. this and they're starting to write in in Sipedi, I think, or Sitswana. And we have not, not had in psychology, and, I, and I'm looking forward before I, I retire in what, you know, 15, 20, 18 years time to see a PhD, a master's degree written in Sitswana, Sizodos, of course. But by the way, this question of language 
as instrument and language as a carrier of values has been a question in philosophy, in African philosophy for a long time, uh, but also in English. You remember Ngugi uh, was about this mm, when he changed absolutely. writing from English to Kikuyu. Absolutely. I want to come back because I want to end on this absolutely beautiful note. When you, the entry on black children and white dolls, you you talk about another issue and I have deja vu, but I'm not sure whether we've yet had that radio conversation um, because you and I often have conversation about the importance of love yep. and how important yep. love is when we center it in parenting in general. Um, and you kind of make that point when you talk about what kind of role models black kids have. And this is what Copano writes at the end of that entry. And he says the, the following, if we are to leave the world a better place for the next generation, then I have to start to love black, to learn black love, to value African children because I value myself. Children can only really love and value themselves if they feel valued by the adults around them. They learn to love from seeing and learning how love is expressed by those adults. We accept ourselves, wards and all, if we are accepted by our fathers and mothers, wards and all. Of course, this is hard, but this is what has to be done. Even if these are only a thousand African children who think that Africans are not as intelligent, talented and beautiful as Europeans, or that black people are not as creative as white people, shifting the preference of African children away from predilections soaked in ideologies of white supremacy and Euro-American normativity remains a key challenge in the search for and effort to realize African-centered psychology. And what I would add, and maybe this is a nod to a next conversation, to an African-centered parenting orientation, because the next time you go and buy toys for your kids, mm -hmm. you have to keep that paragraph from Copano in mind. Copano, thank you for your beautiful mind and for gifting us this book. Um, yeah, I've got nothing more to say other than thank you, thank it you, thank you. It has been beautiful and lovely. Thank you, Eusebius, and have a good day.